Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Just a warning for Indigenous listeners. If this conversation raises anything for you, consider calling 13 Yarn 139276 the 24-7 National Support Line for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, or call Lifeline on 13 11 14. This is Black Bias, an in-depth look at the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in the news. A special fourth estate coming to you through the studios of 2SER and heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Rihanna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist and broadcaster. I spent almost two decades at the ABC working across news, TV documentaries and national radio programming, amongst other things, and have been in the media game for nearly 25 years. And I'm Madeleine Heyman-Reba, a proud Gomorrah woman and Indigenous affairs journalist. I've worked in the media for over a decade across commercial, community and Indigenous media, including NITV, 10 News First Melbourne and Community Radio. Now, Maddie, in the time that we've been doing this job, something we've experienced during our careers is the inference that we bring bias when reporting on Indigenous stories as Indigenous journalists and that somehow we can't be impartial when doing this kind of reporting. That's right, and it's happened within the newsroom from our colleagues and from our audience. As journalists, our work is always factual and brutally honest but it seems that speaking our truth is frowned upon across much of the industry. And that's why we decided to call this six-part series Black Bias as a way of looking at how the media has represented our communities during major public health issues, ownership of land, and how they report on race, but also what the future might hold for Indigenous media. While the representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the news has indeed come a long way in how our communities are reported on by mainstream news outlets, Unfortunately, the negative stereotypes, deficit narratives and unethical practices continue. During this series, you've heard how the colonial narrative continues to drive the reporting of Indigenous affairs in this country. As previously discussed, 2020 and the Black Lives Matter movement led to a reckoning across the media and the arts globally. Australia wasn't left unscathed in this domino effect of accountability, though it probably wasn't as dominant as it was in other countries, with the arts sector here clearly more in the crosshairs than the Australian media. However, mid-2020 saw the unquestioned dominance of white journalists, white management and white perspectives in news and media suddenly up for debate and critique. This global ripple saw 100 journalists sign an open letter calling on the Melbourne Press Club to diversify its all-white 20-seat board, while Junkie pointed out that ABC's Insiders program had not had a single person of colour on its panel in its 10-year history. That call-out led to the ABC's Indigenous Affairs editor, Bridget Brennan, being invited on. 
Meanwhile, The Guardian reported on an internal complaint by journalists at The Age who, among other things, had complained about an editorial claiming that Australia had no history of slavery, a claim the paper took nine days to correct. The journalists also noted that The Age had had only one Indigenous reporter in its 166-year history. However, it's worth noting that the first Indigenous journalist to work in established print media was John Newfong, who joined the Australian in 1971. So our history as Indigenous print journalists is still a fairly new one. Mid-2020 also saw SBS journalists write to management, calling for diverse leadership after a number of former Indigenous staff revealed their experiences of racism at the National Broadcaster. While the West Australian issued an apology for republishing a racist cartoon from 1981 by mistake. However, it's also worth noting that four years prior to the 2020 reckoning, PricewaterhouseCoopers released a now much cited report, which found that just over 82% of Australia's media workers were monolingual and spoke only English at home. It found that broadcast radio was even more homogenous, with on-air talent being 75% male, white and over 35. So while small steps forward are slowly including the voices of those excluded from the conversation, as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander media practitioners, how do we change the colonial narratives in how communities are reported on by mainstream news outlets? Is there something to be learned from our Indigenous relatives across the seas? In November 2020, Aotearoa New Zealand news media website stuff.co.nz issued an apology to Māori. During the website's 20th anniversary, editorial director Mark Stevens reflected on the news company's role in its coverage of the Māori community over the decades and across its newspapers. The apology, published on the Stuff's website, read, A team of reporters investigated how Stuff and its newspapers have portrayed Māori. From the first editions to now, our monocultural lens means we haven't always fairly represented tangata whenua. We've been racist, contributing to stigma, marginalisation and stereotypes against Māori. As part of this apology, a project called Our Truth, Tamato Pono, spent several months investigating the history of racism and critiquing how the history of Aotearoa New Zealand had been told. Carmen Parahi is the Potiaki editor of Stuff and the journalist who led that project team. Carmen, how would you describe the relationship between Māori and mainstream media in Aotearoa New Zealand? So, thanks so much, Rihanna and uh, Maddie, for uh, inviting me to come along to your wonderful podcast. Fabulous. We must, we should have one of these in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I think I must uh, uh, try and find a way to fund such a podcast um, here in New Zealand. So, one thing I'd like to uh, remind everyone is that uh, mainstream media and the news is a colonial construct. It's a colonial system that came from Britain and Europe. So journalism is a British and European construct. So uh, it was then uh, and exported across the world um, and as part of uh, colonisation in many parts of um, the world, uh, the media was set up. 
uh, it was primarily set up to um, reflect the views and aspirations and goals of the colonisers, whoever they may have been. It could have been Spain, Portugal. Uh, in our case, both here and uh, in Australia, it was uh, the British and the Europeans. If you uh, remind it that the news media is a colonial construct, it is a colonial system, it is therefore always going to um, benefit those that were set up for. So um, it hasn't had a very good relationship with Māori because it was set up to support settler New Zealand. Uh, and that continues today. People don't like me saying that because people like to believe that we're way more fair and we have equality for all. But what we do um, have, so in Aotearoa, we had uh, the newspapers that were started and they were part of the stable of newspapers as well. So we have a 160-year-old history of telling the news in this country. Some of it was uh, supportive of the views and provided the views of Māori, um, uh, but at times it was racist. It did stigmatise, it did create um, issues for our people. Um, but we also had Māori newspapers uh, during the time of uh, the land grabs, the New Zealand wars, um, and people and tribes would use their own newspapers to try and put across their views about what was happening uh, at the time across the country. So it's been a fraught relationship. Māori have always complained about uh, mainstream and how it's portrayed Māori. So pōtiaki is a strategy. Pōtiaki is the rautaki. It is what we created to start to change the way we did things. So it began one day, because I've been a journalist for a long time, I've been in mainstream and in Māori media uh, both, um, and I love being in Māori media because I was safe there. I didn't have to explain myself. Um, the only discussions would be who was the better tribe uh, compared to the others. So it was that sort of humour that we had. So uh, it was a safe place for me culturally, um, uh, but I also love mainstream. So I do love journalism. I just want to be clear about that. I love journalism. I love the high ideals of journalism, holding the powerful to account, ensuring that all the voices of all communities are uh, being told and that we represent and are fair to everyone. But we just haven't been doing that. Um, and so Pōtiaki is the strategy itself to um, really explore um, uh, how we've represented Māori over those years. Um, and then part of the Pōtiaki strategy came was the project Tāmato Puno. And Tāmato Puno, we got a group of journalists from across the country, including the boss of editorial, Mark Stephen, to investigate each of the newspapers and each of the newsrooms, also including business, sports, so all those verticals as well. It didn't just include uh, a newspaper. So we really were very, and it was over about three months, where our reporters were to just go and look to see how we had portrayed Māori. We had to learn what we'd done to understand um, what was there, what wasn't there. And some of our reporters uh, struggled uh, because uh, we couldn't see how we'd failed Māori. Uh, and, and so it did take a bit of uh, holding hands with our reporters just to guide them through the process to understand what it was they were seeing, what they were seeing. What did marginalisation look like in a paper? 
what did racism look like in our newspaper? What was the language being used? How were we being racist? Were we being racist? So you really had to investigate, put your journalist hat on and investigate whether these things were true or not and what, what would we would find. And of course we found that we had stigmatised Māori. Uh, one of the features was excellent and what it did, it looked at child abuse in New Zealand and what we'd found is that uh, after our investigation we'd found that Māori were the face of child abuse in New Zealand. Um, to the detriment of all children from across all communities. So Pākehā children, uh, Pākehā being non-Māori, usually white children, their stories, their harm was missed because we'd only focused mainly on Māori kids. And it, people would say in uh, opinion pieces, Māori people are child abusers. So they were calling all Māori, so all Māori child abuse saying was uh, a problem of Māori community. It was always put back as the Māori community's fault. But they didn't apply the same lens or the same um, uh, criticism to all communities, if that makes sense. So our poor Pākehā kids, who had been terribly abused, were ignored and sidelined because we only focused on Māori and made Māori the face of child abuse. So that was a real eye-opener. The other thing was we had a newsroom who said, oh, we've been, we haven't done any racism. There's no racism or discrimination here. And then what we helped them to see is that they just had silence and ignored Māori altogether because there was hardly any reporting of Māori. Or if they had reported on Māori, they'd relied on one journalist to report those views on Māori as, as opposed to the whole as always being a part of the offerings from each newsroom. So that was our investigation, Tamato uh, Kuno. That helped us to, after we realised what we'd done, then we committed to making a public apology uh, and committed to putting the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi into our company charter, which means we are now building and developing those relationships. Of course, I want it all done in the last two years. All of our issues that we've dealt with for the 150 years last 150 years, I thought we could just completely fix in the last two years when we made that apology. What I've realised, like everything, it's going to take generations. It is going to take the next generation of reporters uh, to continue the work that we've started. It isn't an overnight fix, unfortunately, as much as we would like it to be. Um, but uh, what I'm encouraged about is uh, the innovation that could come from this, the way, uh, the ability to, and opportunities that hopefully it'll provide the Māori reporters to come into our newsroom to feel more comfortable. They're not there yet. And we're not there yet as a newsroom. We've still got a long way to go. Um, making the apology is one thing, but the actions ever after that uh, is the thing that we will continue to work on. I thought I would have it solved. I really did, Rihanna and Maddie. I thought, yep, come and... We've made it there, we've done this investigation, we've set up the Pokyaki strategy, it's all going to be sorted in two years. No, I now realise it's actually going to be the next generation. It's not even going to be me. I'm not even going to be there to help. See, when we look back and go, wow, we've completely changed. I might be long dead by then. Uh, and now I realise that actually that's just, my, my goal is just to help set it up and start it and then it's going to be 
the next generation of reporters that do it, storytellers that um, that do do what we really aspire to, which is just uh, have our people tell our stories, but also be cognizant about and be aware and culturally aware and sensitive and safe when you are reporting on these issues, provide context around these issues. Uh, one of the, the biggest points, so uh, part two of our truth, Palmato's Tunnel, was about the history of Aotearoa and New Zealand. What we realised by doing part one, which led to the apology, is that we are a very ignorant country. We are ignorant of our history. We are ignorant of our Māori history. And because of it, because it hasn't been taught in schools at all, and because of it, we, we cannot contextualise the issues of today because we do not know our history. So if you know the issues of the day, you can contextualise those issues because you know our history. It is so much easier. It makes more sense. So look at Māori health specifically. So Māori health, uh, we've got massive issues around Māori health. We um, indicate and all the negative statistics across the board. It's horrifying. And I did a big project a few years ago as a journalist, and I pulled my eyes out when I made a video because I realised that not only are we the negative statistics, we're dying younger, my people are being hurt more because they're not getting the hospital care and the health care that they actually uh, deserve and equally to everybody else. Um, and so if you know the context around health and Māori health, it helped us to understand how Māori were going to be hit during the pandemic. We started straight away started reporting on how Māori had been impacted by the influenza pandemic of 1918. And because we knew about health disparities for Māori, we were able to contextualise very early, and the health experts were very quick to get on it as well, that Māori, if we elect coronavirus to be rampant in the early days, of the virus, our Māori communities and our Pacific Island communities are going to get smashed disproportionately compared to other parts of the community. So history uh, is massive. It is the context for social issues today. It is the context that you need as a news person, as a journalist, as a storyteller to be able to understand the issues of the day. You must know your history. Carmen, when you were coming up with those series of articles, how did you determine what to cover? It was quite easy. We just went from like each of the newspapers. So we have a, a large stable of newspapers across the country. So it was easy. We just brought in reporters to look at that, to go through their uh, archives and to see what was there and what wasn't there, how we'd reported on things. Um, and because I've been reporting on Māori issues, uh, for a long time and have been involved in Māori issues for a long time. Um, it was I was there to be able to guide um, our issues and what were some of the case studies from different uh, newspapers for them to actually hand their investigations on. So our Wellington newsroom uh, in particular, they are uh, where our uh, gallery is, so that's where Parliament is. So obviously they were, we wanted them to have a look at the political aspects as well. Uh, and one of them was a big issue around the CBN and foreshore debate. Now, in that debate was uh, a lack of context around uh, Māori land rights. Uh, there was a lack of context from newspapers, um, like not just the Dominion Post, but stuff overall, about 
what was there, what Māori had and what Māori, what was being taken away. Uh, and this massive, it was a massive land issue. And it actually really tore apart in our country and there was an incredible race, racism uh, during this time. And this was in the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And it led to, you know, sort of, it had all sorts of political ramifications for us. And so it was looking at those issues back then and, you know, people were critical of us and said, oh, yeah, just looking back at history through the lens that we've got now, and we're like, yeah, we are. We are, because we don't want to continue to report like that. We want to continue, we want to report differently. We don't want to look at, we don't want to continue uh, how we made our journalism back then. We, we want to make sure that that journalism no longer exists now. So what we'd also found, and I'm going to say this, we all journalism has improved. We are all very aware now that the voices of Indigenous people, the voices of our diverse communities, inclusive reporting needs to be, uh, has been improved over the years. So where we are now is not where we were 20 years ago when I first, 20 odd years ago when I first started in journalism. I experienced my own racism towards me in Newsroom at the beginning of my career. And we've moved a long way from then uh, to now including uh, around gender diversity, around um, non-binary uh, as well. So there's, a, there's so much social change going on at the moment that it is really difficult uh, times. The pandemic has really, really challenged whether we want to be inclusive or not and how to be inclusive. So there's uh, myself and others at staff who are really working hard to try and make this happen. But... Uh, but we keep make we make mistakes. We will continue to make mistakes. We haven't got it right all the time as well. I'm not going to sit here and say we've got it right all the time because we just haven't. Because um, there are you know reporters from different communities who look differently at things. So one thing we're trying to develop a type of journalism called multi-lens journalism, um, and in that multi-lens journalism, we're just asking people to. Be aware of their own bias. Know the community that they are from, who they are, and then apply other people's lenses to the way they look at um, a story. So that you start to include people from different communities. That you don't just always talk to the uh, Pakia male expert. That you actually go out and look for people who have lived experiences, who are male, female, gender diverse, non-binary, people with disabilities, uh, Māori, Pacific, Asian communities. You know, there's a whole range of voices that have just been left out of our uh, narratives, our country, our nation narratives. People look at New Zealand and think, oh, yeah, you know, it's a colonial country and it's where all the Pākehā live. Well, actually, Auckland, where I live, is one of the most multicultural cities in the world. And yet you would not think so if you were to look at some of our stories because we are not representing every community. Mm, and I think as journalists, sometimes you can get blinkered. You can sort of just keep um, not actually, you know, you've got to think about those decisions that you are making when you're making those phone calls and when you're looking for those people to add some colour to stories. And I guess, you know, I guess, Carmen, I wonder about, you know, how this body of work that you've done at Stuff with this group as part of this apology in those articles and and the move by Aotearoa New Zealand to introduce the teaching of Maori history into schools, how that will you think help in how these stories will be told in the future because 
education has come up time and time again when we've had these conversations with others uh, about the level of um, sort of misunderstandings that journos have around certain things. And and I, I wonder what that brings to the table because we are in 2022 when um, New Zealand said that they were going to go ahead and do this kind of work within schools. And that's the problem. It should have started generations ago, that history. Um, it's the real and true history of Aotearoa New Zealand, right? the history of New Zealand, the history of colonisation. It really matters. Uh, and so this current crop of new journalists and the old journalists will miss all of that history. We will not be taught it. And so even the teenagers, which are my children, they will miss that history as well. Unless they go to university and get it, unless they taught themselves in their own homes, they too will not get that history featuring. So that is group alpha. So that's the alpha generation. God help us, I say about alpha generation. I mean, the name itself, I'm a bit worried about this lot. They're the ones that will benefit from it. Having said that, just because you know something doesn't mean you're going to do it, right? So we need to continue the practices inside of our newsroom that are inclusive. Uh, that do represent everyone fairly. So, you know, as journalists, we just, we really want to do good by people. We, we don't, we really believe in our, our careers as journalists. We believe in the craft of journalism and what it stands for. And so we should be using it to ensure that we provide the voices of all people. But we generally just, we continue to not. Even that stuff, we still do it. We're still like, ah, oh, why don't we, Where's the Māori voice in this story? You know, where is the Māori voice in this issue? We're much better now than we were two years ago. We're much better now than we were 5, 10, 20, 50, 100, 150 years ago. But we've still got a long way to go to be truly representative of all, uh, of our Indigenous Māori and of all people in Aotearoa New Zealand. So it's not this lot that's going to benefit from that, that uh, teaching of history in school. It's not now. It is the future that will benefit from that. And Carmen, just going back to the apology itself, how was it received by the Māori community? During the investigation, we did reach out to uh, different iwi and different iwi leaders, and there was one iwi in particular we reached out to, and they didn't want to be a part of our investigation at all. And I respected that. I totally understood why. Uh, because we had failed to um, uh, represent them fairly when issues were in their territory. And so they didn't want to be a part of it. But I did talk to them uh, before the apology was issued, and I let them know what we were about to do. And they were really surprised by it. And they said, well, when you're ready, come and have a cup of tea with us. And that's all I can ask for, right? I was pleased. I was really pleased with that. It meant that they saw that we were genuine in our in our intent, uh, that we hadn't just made this up for the sake of uh, commercial interests, for the sake of just being competitive again with other news media. We had real intent around it, um, but it had come from a play, a long history. We reached out to all of the iwi tribal leaders. Um, before we sent out the apology to as many as we could uh, to let them know that we were making an announcement and that we would be um, uh, reaching out to start to rebuild relationships with them. It is 
again, this is going to take time. It is not going to just change the way Māori think of us overnight. And, of course, there are heaps of Māori that were like, oh, whatever, what a load of rubbish. And others who are like, who cares? Just get on and do your job, man, you know? Like, just do your job. Even from Māori, they're like... And one iwi leader who, you know, has been very cynical of the, the news media and how we've represented his particular tribe, he says, look, we just want journalists to do, do their job, uh, which is to hold people to account. He says, but we just want them to be fair to us. Well, we can't be fair to Māori if we do not know how to contextualise the issues that they're dealing with today. It is simple as that. But you have to have journalists who understand that, who can say, oh, I'm currently doing a story around the issue of fresh water ownership. And fresh water is a major issue, not just in New Zealand, it's going to be major all over the world. Fresh water, oh, I better talk to iwi and Māori because they've got a stake in this. They've got something to say about water. Carmen, uh, you know, I mean, Maddie and I were having conversations around this because I don't think we could ever foresee that that would happen from an Australian media organisation at all, that one of our newspapers would take the time to even consider that they had even done anything to apologise for. So we were quite blown away with what stuff had done. And and I wonder, I mean, you've had the chance to work um, at uh, APTN, Aboriginal People's Television Network in Canada. You've gone to Japan, which has a very interesting relationship with their Indigenous people. You've even come to town camps here in Central Australia. And I wonder what your observations are of how Indigenous media across the world are, are forcing the change in this narrative. It's not for Indigenous media to force this change, right? It's up for mainstream media to sort their own shit out. It really is. And I've called them out before, like, Australian media is racist. They really need to sort it out. I don't know how many times I have to keep saying this publicly, but I do believe that they have been racist towards uh, First Nations people in Australia and across the world as well. In Canada, um, the hurt and mamai that I saw there amongst First Nations people in Canada was horrifying to me. Like, I really was horrified at um, how they'd been treated uh, not just by the news media, but by the government, uh, and how, and through the education system, by the stories on the residential schools, and I did stories on the missing and murdered women in Canada. And it was just horrifying to me that this, that it was happening when I was there, that there was a real lack of care for Indigenous people. So it is not up to Indigenous media to force that change. We just need to continue on in Indigenous media to tell our stories our way and just continue to be strong in that. Because like in New Zealand, at some point in Australia and the rest of the world, uh, everyone's going to come knocking on your door and go, yo, could we have your Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander reporters can come and work with us? Because we really need you. Uh, because they don't have that capacity and capability within their own newsrooms, right? So that is what's happening here in Aotearoa, New Zealand now. Since that apology... Drawing the line in the sand, not just for stuff, but for all news media in Aotearoa New Zealand, everyone is now using more te reo Māori, so more of the Māori language in their broadcasting, in their papers, um, also a demand for more Māori journalists and a demand for Māori editors uh, to be and leaders in newsrooms. So everyone wants Māori people now, and so there was this massive 
50 odd bill, a million dollars worth of funding, and a lot of it, if you didn't have, uh, so this 50 odd million dollars worth of government funding for public interest journalism, if you didn't have some sort of Māori capability or capacity, you weren't going to get funding. So everyone wanted a bit of that pie, and then all of a sudden they all wanted to work and try and make sure that they were being representative of Māori, right? So in two years we have a lot of things have changed, um, and this is going to happen in Australia. I really foresee very shortly um, that people like The Age and other Australian newspapers are all going to come knocking on your doors uh, and, and, you know, say no. Or say yes, but on my terms, right? So it is very difficult because our newsrooms can be culturally unsafe uh, and it takes some time to make them safe for everyone to come into so that they can be themselves, uh, be Aboriginal, or be a Torres Strait Islander in your own way, tell your stories the way you want to tell them, use the languages you want to use in them. That's a really hard ask. We're getting there to that point, um, but definitely push the government in Australia for more funding to Indigenous uh, news media. That's a big one. Um, the history of your country should be taught in schools, the proper history. I've been really lucky and invited to uh, work with Reconciliation Australia, which I love. Um, I cried um, the day of the apology. So it was, it was amazing, right, that apology. Uh, but it taught me, that apology taught me, not some things change, a few things will change, but not the monumental change that is needed for uh, your people in Australia. So my challenge is to mainstream newspapers, uh, television, radio, podcasts, uh, digital media, to really reckon with your past and how you have represented Indigenous people in Australia Really take a look and understand what you've done and try not to do it again. Make some reckoning of it. You've got to do it. How can you continue to be a uh, stand up and call yourself a journalist organisation or a news organisation that represents all Australians if you do not reckon with how you've represented your Indigenous nation? It makes no sense to me. And I think, you know, you bring up a good point that it's also about the consumer making those decisions too for themselves of not clicking on sensationalist headlines, not subscribing to media that might have demonised Indigenous communities in the past and really knowing that they have a lot of power in that. Carmen, thank you so much for talking to Black Bias. Thank you so much for inviting me here. I love it. This has been a special episode of Fourth Estate on 2SER. That's the final episode of the Black Bias series. Black Bias has been made possible with the amazing support of the Indigenous Land and Justice Research Group at the University of Technology, Sydney, indigenousx.com.au and JNI, the Judith Nielsen Institute for Journalism and Ideas. And a, a big thank you again to Carmen Porahi, Poltiaki editor of Stuff. Technical production by Marlene Even in the 2SCR studio on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Research by Professor Heidi Norman and Archie Thomas. I'm Rihanna Patrick. And I'm Madeleine Heyman-Reba. Thanks for listening.